1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the, mighty, from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and his two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas had died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt in his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Palestines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of, the, of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel for forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending, said, her, attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. For she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. As we come to God's word together, let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we study this narrative together, you would help us understand what it is saying, 
and what it is saying to us in the times in which we live, in the times of the church. The people of God still help us to learn and to listen and obey. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, thank you, Josh, and uh, thank you uh, to Willie and to Roger for leading us. And welcome to you. My name is Robin, the minister of uh, Chalmers. It's lovely to welcome some new folks today. And a welcome to you if you are joining uh, online via YouTube uh, and Zoom. Let me really quickly just navigate us into 1 Samuel, and I'll read a little bit uh, of the uh, chapter 7. 1 Samuel is a crisis time in the history of God's people, a really tough time. And the crisis that they faced was the lack of leadership. And 1 Samuel teaches us a lot about leadership, the kind of leader God's people need. And the very heart of that is the leader God's people need is God himself. And these chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, that's the logical narrative unit. These chapters 4 to 7 teach us that the leader God's people need is God himself. Now for us, uh, we can think of, of Jesus Christ as the leader. He is fully God. Uh, the leader we need is Jesus Christ. Now that's obvious to many of us, but there are some searching questions around that. And there are some searching answers around that, that these chapters help us explore. Now, chapter four that Josh read, what is it saying? It's saying that God's people, when they faced their enemies, the Philistines, were powerless. They were defeated. And the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence and power with his people was captured. And Eli, the priest, was so shocked in that very tragic situation when Phineas's wife gave birth to the boy, gave his name Ichabod, which means the glory of God has left God's people. It's a pretty bleak chapter. Let's jump forward to chapter uh, 7, and I'll describe what you, happens in chapter 6 and 7 later on. Uh, five, five and six later on. Let's read chapter seven. This is sort of 20 years later. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to take charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. This is 20 years after the events of chapter four. And notice what happens now. Something has happened over these 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, that's the people of God then, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods, take out the idols from your lives and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him alone and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, and when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. 
And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Now we're meant in our minds to have these battles for the Philistines in chapter 4 in our minds. In these two battles in chapter 4, the Philistines had routed the people of God. But now, chapter 7, verse 10, the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. That's what the name Ebenezer means. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all of these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. Now, if you look at the back of the service sheet, you'll see uh, some headings. We'll take one at a time, and uh, we'll understand what happened in this period of history, and then we'll seek to apply it to our period in salvation history as the church. Firstly, God's people presume on God and his glory departs uh, from them. God's people presume on God and his glory departs uh, from them. Now, what we read of in the early verses in chapter 4 is the defeat of Israel at the hands of the Philistines. There are uh, two battles in chapter 4 that follow in quick succession. Why are the people of God in this particular period in biblical history fighting with the Philistines? Who were the Philistines? They were the enemies of God's people. They stood against God and they stood against God's people in their possession of the land, the land that God had promised them. They were the enemies of God. They stood against the progress of the purposes of God. Now, we are not battling against the Philistines, but we are still, as God's people in the church, in a battle. Let me read what kind of battle we are in. This is Ephesians chapter 6. Paul writes, finally, in other words, after everything I've said in this letter, hear this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So we are in a spiritual battle. Let me explain what that might look like. Every single advance in the kingdom of God is against the devil and so is opposed. Willie prayed for North Korea. Every single advance against or for the kingdom of God in a context like that is opposed. In our context, very different. But every time a Christian takes a step forward in evangelism, that step is opposed. Every conversion, every conversion is a translation of someone's soul from the realm of Satan to the realm of God, from darkness to light. Every conversion is opposed. If the leadership in a local church seeks to lead that church in a direction, for that church a new direction, but a direction that is increasingly clear in the gospel, or one that is increasingly clear on in the word of God, or one that is impressing on people in that church family the need to live godly, distinctive lives, then that leadership in that local church is leading that church into battle. Sometimes internal when the direction of the church is opposed from within. Training a small group leader is not without opposition. It can't be. Satan does not want people to be equipped to teach the truth. Training and sending out gospel workers, planting a church in an area where there is no clear gospel witness is a hostile act in the sense that it puts a church or a community witnessing to the gospel into enemy territory. Every single advance in the kingdom of God is against the devil and so is opposed. And in our own lives, are we not conscious? I certainly am. Now, I think whenever you hear that from a preacher, I certainly am, you think, well, he's not. Let me just say, I certainly, certainly am. Every single Christian is conscious of the battle within, with sin, with doubts. And making progress in that battle within, with the indwelling sin, needs the power of God, which we have. Now, that's our equivalent of their battle with flesh and blood. Back to 1 Samuel. The battle with the Philistines, the enemies of God, and his people is lost. They lose the battle. Israel is defeated. Now, the question from the elders in Israel is exactly the right question. Just look at it with me. It is the question for us, the readers, to ask and look for the answer. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
After all, uh, Hannah's song in chapter uh, 1 of Samuel, chapter 2 rather of Samuel, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The elders of Israel are absolutely right. You've got to give them the credit for asking the hard question. Why has God defeated us? Why have we not been able to make progress? Now, they are right in asking the question. Where they are wrong is their answer. What's the answer? Uh, their answer, the second half of verse 3, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Now the Ark was a box containing the tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. It was kept at Shiloh and the Ark symbolized the presence and the power of God with his people. The Ark was a visible reminder of God's covenant promise to save his people from their enemies. And so the elders of Israel, having lost this battle to the Philistines, said, bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, the ark, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What were they thinking? That the symbol of God's presence and power would remind the people to depend on God, maybe? Perhaps they thought that bringing the ark, the symbol of God's covenant, to empower his people against their enemies, would remind God of his promise. So the ark was brought. And picture the scene, or imagine the scene in your mind, as these two armies were facing each other, a mighty shout went up from the camp of Israel. A confident shout that God would save them. A genuine and confident shout that God would save them. They believed it. The Philistines were afraid when they heard the noise of the shouting from the camp of Israel. The Philistines were afraid because, and we can read this, they concluded that the God of Israel had come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? And then uh, verse uh, 9, take courage and be men, O Philistines. This is from the leaders of the Philistines. And you've got to admire their courage. But you can imagine these Philistine soldiers facing off against Israel, spurred on by the courage of their leaders knowing, though, that they had no chance if God had indeed come into the camp of Israel. 
They'd learned that lesson many times. And verses 10 and 11 are meant to shock us. It's not what we expect in the narrative. So the Philistines fought, and we expect, and were defeated by Israel. Because the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that symbolizes the power and the presence of God, his covenant promise to enable his people to prevail. So the Philistines fought, and instead of were defeated by Israel, we read, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a great slaughter, for they fell Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers, and moreover, the ark of God, the symbol of the power and presence of God with his people, was captured by the Philistines, lost. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Now, that's the heart of the application of this chapter. The ark may have been with God's people, but God was not with them. Why? Because the ark of God was a symbol of the covenant between God and his people, and God's people had broken that covenant. What needed sorting was not getting the ark. What needed sorting was their broken covenant with the Lord. Now, things, as we've been studying this book, were really bad in Israel at this time. The corrupt sons of Eli, priests at Shiloh, Hophni, and Phinehas were described in chapter 2 as worthless men who did not know the Lord. There's a little detail in chapter 4. It's Hophni and Phinehas who are with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The leaders of God's people corrupt to the core Without the right leadership, the people of God turn away from God. The corruption spreads. The disregard for God spreads. That's what had happened. Had that not been the case, the elders, chapter 4 and verse 3, would have said to the people, not go and get the ark. They would have said to the people, cry out to the Lord for his mercy. That was a bleak day for the people of God. They had the symbols of God's presence, his power, but they did not have God. And if they do not have God with them, they cannot advance against uh, their enemies. Now, in our context, we may have all the symbols of God's presence and his power in the church. We may have buildings and membership, and people, and confessions, and creeds, and professions, and promises, reputations, and sermons, YouTube, Zoom, and all the rest of it, vision, strategy, dynamic leadership. But if we do not have God with us, we have nothing. As God's people then and God's people still, we will not, we cannot make progress 
in the advance of the kingdom of God unless we have God's power with us. We cannot presume that God will be with us because we have the name church on the door. We cannot presume that God will be with us because we have a heritage in this part of the world. We cannot presume that God's power will attend to our efforts, whether corporately as a church or individually in our lives, if there is something seriously wrong in our relationship with God, with Jesus, whether at a corporate level in the church or in our lives as individuals. Now, the strong word from this chapter, do not presume on God, needs to be said alongside if we return to the Lord, he will forgive and embrace and affirm and forget. What of the church in Scotland, in the UK? What of Chalmers? What of our lives as individuals? Here's a question I've been thinking a lot about this week. Why are we making so little progress? Why is there so little evidence of the power of God at work? Why is the Lord withholding his power? Now, I'm not sure we can be absolutely dogmatic what the answers are, but I think it's really important we ask these questions. And this text of Scripture at least invites us to consider that the answer might be to the lack of power in the church, at least in this part of the world, in this period of history, might be because for some considerable period of time, like in that period of history, God's people have been drifting from God in their distinctiveness, their godliness, their holiness, their dependence, their praying, their evangelism. Their commitment to mission. Yesterday, uh, Sally and I had a long walk on the beach. We start at two different ends because I walk faster. We meet in the middle 
and we walk back together so I get a longer walk. I asked Sally, as I was, she knew I was on the sermon, I was sort of preaching to the people on the beach. Why, I asked her, do I lack power in my life? She said, it might be because there is stuff in your life you need to deal with. Might be. Now, the second half of chapter four deals with the reaction to the news of the defeat the death of Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, but in particular, the reaction of Eli and Phinehas' wife to the loss of the ark or the departure of God from his people. Eli falls over and dies. The text says, when he heard about the ark, And that woman, a godly woman, the wife of Phinehas, who had suffered much at the hands of her priest husband, his adultery, and all the rest of it, she was so shocked at his death, but the text says, at hearing that the ark had been captured, that she went into labor, and she gave birth to a boy. And she could not be comforted. And she called him Ichabod. Her last act in this life, whose name means the glory of God, has left the people of God. It's a pretty bleak chapter. But the Bible has lots of bleak chapters that we do not jump over, that we wrestle with and apply to our time and to our circumstances. What strikes me about that woman? There are godly women all over this book of 1 Samuel, Hannah, And now the wife of Phineas. What strikes me about this godly woman is her heart broken at the departure of the glory and power of God from his people. Now, chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 4, I guess the, the big point is now as then, do not presume on God. Do not presume on Him as a church, as individuals, and contemplate how then God's glory, His power, left His people. Now, chapters 5 and 6, we don't have time to read them, 
It would make me very happy if somebody read them this afternoon and then talked to me about it on email. So there's a little hint for you. Read them this afternoon. What these chapters describe is what happened when the ark of God left the people of God and went into Philistine territory for seven months. What did the Philistines do? They took the ark, which symbolized God's power and God's presence with his people, and they stuck it in the temple of their gods next to Dagon, or a statue of Dagon, their god. And what happened? Overnight, supernaturally, Dagon fell to the ground on his face before the ark of God, symbolizing the power and presence of God. So what do they do? They put Dagon back on his feet. The next morning, they saw that Dagon had fallen again, and this time he had smashed his head, his hands. And then, plagues began to appear amongst the Philistines, tumors they are referred to. And the Philistines, sensing that this was indeed the God of Israel, displaying his glory among them, had a council, and then they agreed to send the ark to another town which you might conclude is a little, well, past the buck. And the ark goes to another town, and that town, the plague follows, and so on and so forth, until they get to the point when they realize that the hand of God is against them, and they determine to get the ark out of Philistine territory back to Israel and really what they're determining to do is to get God and his power away from them. Now, application to us. If God's glory and his power has departed from us, What do we make of the fact that his glory and his power is manifest elsewhere in other parts of the world, for example? We rejoice that God is at work there. But we do need to ask the question, why is he not at work here? And the answer is that God does not need us. We need him. God is infinitely gracious to us. He loves us and he forgives us. He saves us, he makes promises to us, but he does not need us. He is free to be God. God's people presume on God at their peril and his glory departs from them. 
And that is compounded when we see God revealing his glory apart from his people. I always remember early on in the uh, pandemic, seems we've got kind of used to this now, don't we? As we had to come to terms with the issue of face masks and all that kind of stuff that are difficult and are hard. I really felt that this morning. I really did feel that this morning in the first service. This is not easy. I always remember one of our gospel partners in a part of the world where God's power is evidently at work. Saying to me, Robin, you tell them that if people in my country had to wear a mask to go to church or do this, that, or the other, they wouldn't even think about it. Now, we need to be careful with that because, you know, we have to come to terms with that over a period of time. But it doesn't matter compared to the importance of worshipping God and listening to his word. Now, thirdly, and encouragingly, but you see, chapter seven doesn't have really any bite or any searching or long lasting impact if it is devoid of chapters four, five, and six. Chapter 7, God's people lament and return to him and his glory returns to his people. Chapter 6 records the ark returned to Israel, the place of the return, the fields of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. The chapter ends with the people of Beth Shemesh asking the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim to come and take the ark of the Lord, which they did. The ark is back in Israel. Let's read again the first two verses of chapter uh, 7. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to take charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented. Notice the words I emphasize, a long time past, some 20 years. I wish phrases like that weren't in the Bible or went in God's plan. Years of reflection, years of heart searching perhaps as God's people came to terms with a real answer to the question, why is God's power not with us? God's timing is always God's timing. Sometimes he will make his people wait. Other times he will wait patiently for us. A long time passed, some 20 years, a generation. 
But something was happening through Israel, people coming to terms with the fact that as his people, they had disobeyed God, turned from him, lost their distinctiveness, presumed on God. It can take a generation for God's people to come to terms with this. The malaise, when it sets in deep, takes time to work out But in the end, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Roger got excited earlier in the notices, which isn't easy. He just did about the prayer meeting. Do you know they have been really, really encouraging meetings during lockdown on Zoom? Because we can crowd in without social distancing. Online. They've been great meetings, and I look forward genuinely to Tuesday as many, many of us will gather and pray and depend on God. And if there's any text in Scripture to encourage that, it's this section of 1 Samuel. It's not just ones and twos, it's not just the wife of Phineas, shocked in her heart. Now it's the whole of the people of God. And what are they doing? They are lamenting after the Lord, lamenting. What's a lament? It is a passionate expression of grief, born of regret, lamenting, repenting, is not the end goal, it is the state of mind and heart that leads people back to God. So the text says, if you are lamenting, then you are returning. And if you are returning, Samuel the prophet says, with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtar get rid of all the idols, whatever they are in our lives as individuals or corporately in our church's life that comes between us and God, and you will not get rid of these things if you are not moved by the Spirit of God to lament, to repent, and to give God all your heart. So I could preach a a passionate sermon about getting rid of the idols in my life and your lives and our church's lives and the, the indifference to this, that, and the other, the lack of distinctiveness. And we'd all go home and we might be motivated for a day or two or a week, but the real answer, the real answer comes when there is lamenting and repenting and pledging and giving our hearts. And what does God promise? He says here, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And that's exactly what God uh, did. This time, the two armies met. 
Remember the last time? The Philistines were afraid and Israel were confident. This time, Israel is afraid and the Philistines are confident. Fear of God, dependence on God. What happened? Well, it was a decisive day for the progress of the kingdom of God. Samuel put up a stone, a marker. He called it Ebenezer. The name Ebenezer means till now the Lord has helped us. That's what it means. So whenever you saw that stone, you would remember that day when God's people were afraid in their evangelism, in their church planting, for their country, whatever it was, and depended on God and gathered around and prayed to God. That day, God really helped them and his power became manifest amongst them. Let's put a stone up to remember that. It, that's what Eben, but why did he give it the name Ebenezer? Ebenezer is also a place, what place? The place where God's people came to terms with the fact that if they presume on God, he would leave them. That's where the first battle was. You know, when we come to meet with God in prayer on Tuesday, and there are multiple needs in our nation and in our world to pray for, we need to have two things in our mind. We need to remember the times when God has, in his power, made real progress, and we have been involved in that. But we need to also bring with us on Tuesday night in our memories times when we presumed on God. And he wasn't there. Now, we're done. Let me, uh, let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on these uh, powerful, powerful passages in Scripture, we pray now that you would apply them deeply into our hearts. That if there as, well, it is the case that there is little evidence of power, your power in the church, at least in this part of the world today, help us to ask the question, why? Help us not to turn to the stuff that doesn't matter. Rather, help us to lament after you. Return to you with all our hearts and to get rid of the stuff that encumbers us to be distinctive people again. Lord, that application to the church is first and foremost to this local church, to ourselves. That's what we can really do something about. Help us to learn the lessons of these chapters. And to us as individuals, if the power, the glory of God is 
is lacking in our life in the ways that we need it, like in doing evangelism, like in living godly lives. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to lament, to repent, to give you our hearts, to return to you, and so be in the place where we really can deal with these issues. Thank you, God, that you are so consistent and so real and so true and so direct in your word. Help us, Lord, to listen. For Jesus' sake. Amen.